Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're looking at the first 10 verses this morning. For those that are visiting with us, we're in a series going through this epistle. And while you're turning there, I'd like to make two comments. One is, I don't know if you heard Bill Sharp say something that's significant. He talked about us who get the privilege of serving and ministering for you as we are called to love you. Now, you would not know this, but during the interview process, the committee asked me this question. They said, what is, what is the crucial factor you need to know for you to come to GBC? And my response, and I don't know if they remember this because it wasn't your typical response. It says, we have to know whether or not we can love these people. Has God called us to love these people? Serving out of duty, and because it's a job, is very different than serving out of love. So you need to be aware from our standpoint, that's how we operate. And, and Bill was right when he talked about that this morning. Now the other, other observation I want to make has to do with last week. Now for some, including Steve Lapp, who was on stage, it's what we call out of our comfort zone. Why? Because hearing about an Amish that's a Christian serving God in Iraq is not the usual way we experience life, is it? But I want to make this observation. We are not defined by culture. We are defined by Christ. It's not how we do, but it's who we worship. Amen. Now, Bev and I have been with you for about a year and a half. I know for some that seems short, for others that seems a long time. <laughs> and uh, you need to be aware of that there are things that GBC does that I'm not comfortable with. Why? Because over my 36 years of ministry experience, it's not been part of my experience. Now, you're probably thinking there, what is that? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Why am I not going to tell you? Because it's not that important. Now, having said that, I'm sure there are things that I've introduced that some of you are not comfortable with. But just because we're not comfortable with something does not make it wrong. It's just difference. And I think we forget that what was effective 20 years ago in some ways has lost its ability to influence. I mean, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 9. Just listen to these verses. And he, disciples of John come to Jesus and they're talking about shifts in culture, shifts in traditions. And here's what Jesus says. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is a new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts and the wine is spilled out and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Now, I talked a little bit about this last week, that God created us to be diverse, and that's evidence in his creation. I mean, look at the beautiful fall foliage. There's red, there's yellows, there's, you know, the evergreens that stay green. 
And unity is born out of design of mission and purpose. So this study in 1 Peter, it's addressed to suffering exiles, both present and future. Now let's go back to our comfort thinking. And comfort thinking is everybody does it like me. If we live for Jesus, we think in America, then we will not suffer. Peter is telling us, even when you follow Jesus, even when you are healthy followers of Jesus, you will suffer. Now that's out of our comfort zone. So being called to a living hope, being called to love, this is all part of the gospel being in us. And this week, we're going to talk about the call for spiritual growth. Now again, think about we are born again by grace. And when that happens, there's a transformation. There's a heart change that only God can do. But there's also an ongoing work that only God can do. It's why he left us his word. It's why he left us his spirit. It's why he called us to be the body of Christ. But there's a critical truth we need to grasp. That if we're going to understand spiritual growth, if we are going to learn what God has in store, there is one single truth we have to understand. And Peter addresses that this morning. We have to treasure Christ. Now keep that thought as we read this passage. 1 Peter 2, the first 10 verses is where we're going to occupy this morning. Peter writes these words. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that is by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. There's that phrase again. And whoever believes in me will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Treasure Christ. I heard John Piper preach a sermon where he talked about treasuring Christ in this passage. I never looked at it this way. And so we're going to kind of park just on that thought. There's a lot of different ways we could take this apart. But I want you to think about treasuring Christ. And here's the first principle. Treasuring Christ is God's response to Christ. 
so it should be ours. I'm going to say that again. Treasuring Christ is God's response to Christ. We're called to be imitators of God. Paul says that in Ephesians 5. So it should be ours. Look at verse 4 again. As you have come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God's chosen and precious. The word precious means of worth, of value, of significant worth. But this stone that was thrown out on Calvary, this stone that was mocked and accused, this stone is the only reason we see God. Now when I come face to face in heaven, and God asks me, why should I let you in? There's only one thing I'm going to do, and I'm going to point to Jesus. And I'm going to say, there is nothing else that I bring of value that will let me into your kingdom. He is that precious cornerstone. And of course, Peter repeats himself in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now the argument is very simple. If God who sees perfectly and feels perfectly, who is perfect in all his character and senses, if God counts Jesus his highest value, then I should too. And so should you. Now, this is the six-year-old part of the message, okay? A six-year-old can understand this. If God counts Jesus his highest value, then I should too. Now, having said that, we're not called to treasure our version of Christ. Our version of church. Part of a mission movement back in Zimbabwe, and if you would go there today, I mean, they got hundreds of churches. But the missionaries that went over in the early 1900s, when people accepted Christ, what they did was they brought them into a American Christian compound and made them dress like Americans and made them worship American-style songs and made them build American-style buildings. So if you go over there, you will see buildings that look like buildings we built back in the 60s and 70s. You will see ladies who come worship with head coverings and everything that, that we used to do previous generations. Men, even though it's 100 degrees out, go in suits and ties. See, that was our version of church. So when we talk about treasuring Christ, holding him of value, it's not this stuff that we are comfortable with, but rather it's Christ in us. And we can hear stories of, of God working in the Amish community in ways that just we kind of scratch our head and say, wow, whoever thought of doing that that way? Now, here's the second principle. Treasuring Christ is more, not less, than knowing Christ is precious. Now, let me explain what I mean. We all get caught up in doctrine. Doctrine is what we know. And like good people who like to think well about our doctrine, we argue and we fight, and we really get weird if someone doesn't believe like us. So we have Baptists and First Baptists and Second Baptists and Third Baptists. And again, there's 66 different versions of Baptists because there's just some nuances differently about their doctrine. The one that's most obvious has to do with our end times theology. 
Now, you know and I know there is smart thinking in several camps. And you know what that tells us? We're not as smart as we think we are. <laughs> but it seems like there are some that are so hard lying about their thinking that they will probably argue with Christ when they see him face to face and he doesn't do it the way they think it should be done. And we'd even say, but you said it right here in God's word. Now, you need an example of this if you don't believe me? Prior to Christ's coming, they had some really smart people in Jewish culture, the theologians of Jesus' day, who study, who predicted when the Messiah would come, what he would look like, what he would act like. And when he showed up, just like Scripture spoke of, how many got it right? No, they went and killed him. Because he did not fit their version of the Messiah. Now, what this passage tells us then is that treasuring Christ is more, that means there's an addition to this, than just knowing. There's also a desire, a feeling, we call it an emotion. Look at verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that milk, that's the word of God so that it may grow up in, unto, into salvation. We're to long, we're desire for this word of God stuff. But then he says this in verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now milk is the word. But here's the point. Babies really want milk. I mean, it's their life. To a baby, the only world exists is give me my milk. And we are to desire this milk. We are to taste, just not read and study and know. We're to taste, we're to experience, we're to long for that the Lord is good, that he is a treasure. And of course, Peter says that Milk is only as good to the degree that it reveals the Lord. That's the primary use of the Bible. The Bible is God's inspired revelation of a person. Christ. It's not there for you to get rich. It's not there so you can live in comfort. It's not there that when you get sick, you say the right words, you pray the right prayer, and you get healthy. But it's there that you long for, that you desire Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. Take ice cream. And I buy a nice box of ice cream. And I taste it. And you're sitting there and I say, wow, this is really good. And you shake your head in agreement, yeah, it must be good. And I offer it to you, and you say, no. You say, I, I believe you. I can see that it tastes good. But no, I don't want to taste it personally. See, that's where a lot of people, a lot of Christians live. They say, I believe you about Jesus. I believe that he's the Son of God. I believe he's the Savior. I believe he can do all these things. He can transform me. But no, thank you. I don't want to taste them. And so there's many people sitting in our churches who know the sentences. 
They know that Jesus is Christ's Savior, Lord. He's the truth. He's the way. He is the bread of life. But they say, no, thank you. I will go to church and say the sentences. And I'll sing my songs. And I'll read the truth. But no, thank you. I don't want to taste that the Lord is good. I think there's too many people that have no heart for Jesus. He's not the treasure that he should be. I'm going to believe that he is, but I'm not really going to taste that he is. So what Peter tells us is you have to know that he's the treasure, but you also have to feel or taste it. You have to move it from your head down to your heart. And of course, Peter says then we need to live like he is the treasure. Look at verse 1. He goes, so put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. I mean, think of it this way. You've just been invaded by the Holy Spirit, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's revealed to you the beauty of his son. Light has shone in your mind and heart. You have this glorious Savior, mighty Lord. So what's left in your heart if Christ is your treasure? I mean, Paul says it this way. Put off these things and put on these things. So ask yourself this question. Why would I hold anger in my heart and unforgiveness towards someone if this glorious treasure is of highest, most infinite value who's forgiven me of unthinkable things? I mean, why would I pretend and be a hypocrite? Why would I envy? I mean, Christ owns the entire universe. And we get that inheritance. And you're going to envy someone else's car? (laughs) Really? I mean, think about slander. No, it feels good to run someone down that you don't like. But think about what Christ knows about you and what he says about you. That you are his son. That you are his daughter. That you're adopted into his family. Spiritual growth means we have to taste that the Lord is good. It's just not knowing certain facts. It's just not sitting in a Bible study. But somewhere we have to taste it, get it into our hearts, and then push it out into our lives. So do you see the truth that Peter is portraying? That if we fail to treasure Christ the way we should, then suffering will take us out. Then hard times will make us want to quit. We won't grow like we should because we are not nourishing ourselves with the pure spiritual milk of the word. It's knowing, but it's also tasting and then living out. Now here's a third truth. Treasuring Christ defines a new race of people. It fascinates me in verses 9 and 10. I'm going to read this again. But think about Israel, but he's saying this about us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The very same things he spoke about Israel. A people for his possession, his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Three identifications here. He talks about race. It's the word genealogy we get from. It's the word nation, ethnicity. And then the word people, laity. Three claims that were spoken of Israel. And Peter takes them to the church. Now this is huge. And the practical effects are absolutely monumental. And it's why in Peter he uses words, and we're going to see this later on, exiles, sojourners, aliens. But we all know that a race of people have dominant thoughts and traits. Now our dominant thought and trace is that we treasure Christ. We are a people who measures Christ above everything and anything else. He is the pearl of great price. Jesus tells a story about that. Of a man who literally sells everything in order to purchase just one single pearl. Now this has an effect. It transforms and exposes it exposes all our, all our alienated differences. For instance, you know, in the body of Christ, there are certain things we call sin. It alienates us from God, but it also alienates us from other people who do not call those things sin. It talks about attitudes and behaviors that we are to treasure, like unity and love and generosity. But what is new is that the intent value of Christ is reflected differently. And it's a group project. Now, contrast that with culture today. Culture today attempts to take away all our distinctive differences. I mean, they they keep telling us there's no difference between men and women. That everyone's the same. Really? Last week, we had Amish families with us. Were they different culturally than us? Absolutely. I mean, the fact that Steve and his family, there's 11, live in a mobile home together. I mean, that's a huge difference for me. I don't know if I could do that. Have you ever seen those showers in those places? And you got 11 people trying to take that in the morning? But what you saw last week was Christ being treasured and Christ working out his plan Inside of their differences. In fact, it's how Christ got them to Iraq. It was those differences that he used because of the shooting. Is God in control? That was a weak yes. Is God in control? I guess what I'm saying is this. Let's prize and pursue our diversity. Here's the fourth principle. The hard act of treasuring Christ is meant to be spread. Look at verse 9 again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That. Here's the cause. Here's the purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. This is the purpose for the church. We exist to spread the glory of God, the light of the world, this glorious, incredible life, hope and joy 
that not even suffering can quench. And it is a demonic notion that we keep this to ourselves. Satan doesn't want us to share. We are called to grow. We are called to multiply Christ. I guess I ask the question, do we have what people need? Not once. But here's what Paul says about people that have not yet discovered the treasure of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, talking about people outside of Christ, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We are called to bring good out of the horrible evil of the crucifixion. Now, this is going to require some shifts for us. If we're going to treasure Christ above everything else, if we're going to allow that to be the catalyst for our spiritual growth, if we are going to so desire Christ that we align our minds and our hearts and our lives, here's some shifts we have to make as a church. From institutional political to being the church. How many times we say things like this, but you know, our policy says we can't do that. <laughs> if you want to witness to surrounding community, you must fill out Form 27A and B and submit it to the Leadership Council and then get approved by the Congregational Council. Steve Lapp forgot to do that and they threw him out of their church. I mean, that's what happened. We have to shift from being institutional and political to being the church. We have to shift from being socially acceptable to Paul's version and Peter's version. Paul says in Romans this, that the cross of Christ is offensive. And Peter says that this building, this cornerstone that's rejected is offensive. Now, let me say this. Christ is offensive, not us. We often get that backwards. Westboro, Westboro Baptist Church, they are offensive. I'm sorry, they really don't have anything to do with Christ and his love. Now, last week in Ohio, though, a group of pastors gathered around a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic, and they blessed it. And they're planning to bless eight more. And they call themselves the Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. See, their concern is, and they said this in the article, they want to make sure that the church is socially acceptable to everyone. That's not our goal. Our goal is to treasure Christ. We have to shift from being socially acceptable to Paul's version and Peter's version that Christ at times is offensive. We have to shift from going to church to being the church. Now, every generation has to figure this out. Many of you know that Bev and I are talking, well, we're not talking about moving. We are moving, which means we shift through everything that we collected for the last 20 years. And we're going through our aunt's apartment right now. And I'm amazed. We found a whole dresser full of past financial statements. That's all it was. Why did she keep those things? Here's what I've learned Every generation needs to go through a rummage sale. (laughs) 
We need to go through our church, things we've accumulated, things we have emotional affection for, and we have to get rid of it because it no longer holds the value that it did at another season. See, the problem is we often get so rigid that the next generation can't breathe. Here's what I'm saying. We treasure Christ over stuff and forms. And we often forget that in our generation, Christ did a new thing. Now, I'm told that the only people that appreciate change are babies, and they sleep through most of it. (laughs) But let's understand that how we do church is that we treasure Christ. We have to shift from complexities to structure and structure to simplicity and systems. I think sometimes we make Christ... Here's what I'm amazed at. And this happened with most of our grandkids and even our kids. You know, a four-year-old and a five-year-old and a six-year-old can accept Christ. I mean, for real. But as we get older, we seem to make Christ so complex that people can't even engage. See, simplicity and systems, systems breathe, systems adapt, systems change. Here's what it comes down to. I'm going to ask you a question. And I'm going to personalize it myself too. All this stuff about treasuring Christ, all this stuff about being and spreading this marvelous light around the world, we really have to ask ourselves this question. Do I trust the Holy Spirit? Now, when I ask that question, many people are afraid. Why? Because they think the Holy Spirit's going to do something weird. Now, having said that, people will always distort the work of the Spirit. Amen? But because they distort it doesn't mean we throw out the baby with the bathwater. I've had many people in my own ministry come to me and claim to be prophets. And of course, being a prophet, when God speaks to them, they speak to me, and I just don't listen. I need to obey what they have to say. And, and I'm fine with listening to people who believe they're prophets. But when most of their revelations have to do with their preferences, rather than the purpose and mission of displaying the glory of God through changed lives... I reserve the right to disagree when it's not consistent with the Word of God. Now, let me mention something that Steve said last week. Some of you picked up on it. Others didn't. Remember Steve talked about how before he went to Iraq one time that he had a dream? Now, some of you, when he said that, red flags went up. And you started saying, oh, he's one of those people. It's too mystical. Now, we know, and you hear the long story, the dream really was to prepare him for where God was taking him into a very dangerous situation and zone. And God was basically saying, listen, I got your back on this one. Now, for some, anything mystical is kind of out of the weirdness of the Holy Spirit they don't want to touch. And I say, really? (laughs) We worship a God who we cannot see? We talk about, I mean, how many people believe in angels and demons? Okay. Ever see any? We pray expecting this God to answer. 
And we even have scriptures like this in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, quoting an old prophet, Joel 2, verse 28. In the last days it shall be, and if you didn't realize, we're in the last days. It's called the church age, right before he comes again. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. We kind of just put that in the back pocket, and we don't want to look at that, because when someone like Steve says they had a dream that God was forewarning him, we're like, okay, that's just a little do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do for us. I mean, here's the point. If you didn't see it, Steve and his brothers treasure Christ. And he has called them in very unique situations that only God could work out. But here's what Peter is saying to us. Let me sum it up this way. We are called to live the claims of the gospel. And he really asks us this question. Is Christ worth living for? We have an incredible opportunity to spread the gospel in a marketplace where the opinions of Christians no longer dominate. That's what he's telling his people. And that's a relevant message for us today in our culture. Because in the marketplace, Christian opinions are no longer dominant. And he says, treasure Christ. Do it in your mind, do it in your heart, do it in your actions. Now, if you want someone else's word on this, listen to what Jesus says. Where your treasure is, there also will be your heart. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close, I think. Yes. And while they do, I want to pray for you. Father God, I pray we take this simple truth that we should treasure you in our mind, in our heart, in our lives. And that becomes the predominant aspect of who we are. You are of the highest value. We know that. Help us to live in such a way that becomes a reality. And we confess to you that we are, well, like everyone else in this planet, we are fallen creatures that so often get distracted by things that aren't important. So forgive us for allowing other idols and stuff to occupy our lives. Forgive us for when we get so distracted that you no longer become the highest value in our lives. Forgive us when we allow stuff just to so invade our lives that That we just don't see you the way we should. Help us just not to know you, but also taste you. And taste the Lord is good and become the reality of the light that you call us to be in a world that is so desperately needing Jesus. I know we think we're pretty smart. That just simply means we haven't humbled ourselves the way we should. Help us to sit at your feet, to listen to what the Spirit has to say, to study your word, and then go. And we'll leave the rest up to you because 
we don't have the kind of resources or smartness or abilities to do what you've called us to do and to be. May we treasure you. In your name we pray. Amen.